Omis, welcome to a special interview of the week. This week I have with me Colton from Liquidy. You're the business development or what's what's your proper title? The part, partnerships manager? Pretty much, I pretty much. But the, the, I guess the official title is, is head of growth, but it definitely encompasses a lot of the business development work, marketing work, partnership work, all that good stuff. So uh, we're a really small team, so we, we all take on a, a lot of different hats or wear a lot of different hats, uh, which is you know amazing. You can explore all of these different avenues for you know bettering yourself in your career. So it's been really fun. Very cool. How big's the team then? The team is, as of recently, nine people strong uh, with, a, with a couple of advisors. So uh, we were eight for a while and we recently hired a COO. Uh, his name is Michael and he'll be helping out on, on the biz dev side as well, but also doing, you know, typical COO things, uh, making sure the company is running and running smoothly. Very cool. Um, so is it like a company structure that sits behind it? Like, is it like a labs LLC or something? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a it's a Swiss-based company, so I think they use like AG. So the company itself is Liquidity AG. Um, mm-hmm. Only one of us, which is Robert, the, the founder, or actually now the COO. So the CEO and COO are both based in Switzerland, and then the rest of the team is globally distributed. But yeah, it's, it's a company set up and... Uh, very, I guess, uncommon in, in the space these days with, with the sort of reemergence of DAOs, but um, comes with its trade-offs, comes with its benefits, but it, it's yeah. interesting for sure, especially like collaborating from company to DAO, which is very different than, you know, DAO to DAO relationships. So that's been a really interesting sort of thing to navigate, uh, especially mm. recently. Yeah. Um, you had like an offsite recently. Is that like one of the perks? Yeah, yeah, I guess it, I guess it is one of the perks. Unfortunately, I did not get to go to the offsite because um, I I ended up getting COVID, and so oh, I, I, yeah, I, I didn't get to go to the offsite. But the rest of the team got to go, and it was amazing. And I just kind of participated remotely, uh, but it was really cool. Like, uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to meet the team, but everybody else got to meet, which is great. Um, and the, you know, the world's starting to open up a lot more, so uh, it, hopefully, we can do another one in the near future. But yeah, I guess DAO offsites are a little less common. It's harder to <laughs> aggregate, you know, 150 people or whatever it is. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, maybe I think like a lot of people would have like a kind of understanding that Liquidity makes this uh, stablecoin LUSD and it's sort of fully backed by uh, ETH. And then it's got this governance token LQTY that is kind of the fee capture token. Is that... Is that kind of what it is at a high level? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, I mean, except for the governance part, which I can touch on really quickly. Um, so Liquidity is a decentralized borrowing protocol that allows yeah. users to deposit ETH and then borrow LUSD against that ETH interest-free. Um, on the token side, so we, we're actually completely governance-free and the contracts are, are completely immutable. So very uh, Uniswap style, I guess, until uh, recently when Uniswap launched governance. But uh, for the most part, Uniswap's contracts are, are completely immutable, especially Uniswap v2. Uh, so our contracts are built in that same exact way. We can't change anything about them. We can't uh, go in and you know pass a governance proposal to get those um, get the parameters adjusted, etc. 
So the LKTY token is really a reward mechanism and a way for uh, its holders to sort of claim revenue on the system. So LKTY stakers earn 100% of, of all of the revenue generated by Liquidity itself. So the so that's the profit after because you pay um, the, there's part of the profits go to f distributed front end operators. Is that right? So we have this sort of distributed front end model where uh, anybody can run a front end for Liquidity because we don't run one ourselves as a company, which is I guess pretty unique uh, these days. Though it's starting to get a little more popular. But yeah, the, the LKTY token is also used to incentivize those front-end operators. So we have this uh, one mechanism, which we can touch on maybe in a bit, called the stability pool, which sort of underwrites all of the loans in the system. So whenever a position is liquidated, the LUSD sitting in the stability pool is used to sort of pay off that bad debt. Um, and front-ends are rewarded for encouraging their users to deposit to this pool. So there's uh, two ways rewards work in, in the stability pool. Whenever users deposit, they earn LKTY as a function of time. So the longer you're in the pool, the more LKTY you earn. Very traditional uh, mm. yield farming type of strategy. Uh, and then they also earn ETH whenever liquidations occur. Uh, like I mentioned, the LUSD is used to pay off bad debt in return for uh, that position's collateral. And so uh, where front-ends come into this is Whenever users deposit LQTY through, or sorry, LUSD to the stability pool, um, they earn a portion of their users' accrued LQTY rewards. So the front ends can also set this. Uh, so, for example, let's say that a front end uh, sets a kickback rate of 99%. That means they'll receive 1% of all of the LKTY rewards their users receive for depositing to the stability pool. And I'm, I'm happy to dive into each little section if yeah, you need to to kind of get some clarity there. There's a I lot going that, on. Yeah, there's a, it's like at a super high level, it's pretty easy, but then trying to understand all the mechanisms gets a bit bit hard. Um, but yeah, let's, let's start back um, and get to know about you a little bit. Sure. Um, so did you, when did you kind of, what's your background kind of before crypto and then, you know, how did you, how did you fall, fall into crypto? Yeah. So my intro to crypto is like really weird and kind of long winded, but basically I, I stumbled upon it uh, when I was in high school, specifically, I, I stumbled upon Bitcoin when I was in high school in 2011, 2012 or so, uh, completely on accident. I was into cybersecurity at the time, which is really random, but I was into cybersecurity at the time. And uh, during 2011, 2012 was like the rise of the or sort of the end of the rise of the anonymous movement. Um, you know, the Silk Road was kind of at its peak. And so couldn't really be interested in cybersecurity without stumbling upon those things. And Bitcoin yeah. was really popular in those circles. Uh, but I, I never really thought much of it. You know, I thought it was cool, but the idea kind of just made sense to me. I was like, oh, of course, you know, this thing exists, uh, which I don't know, maybe that was like naive at the time. But I, I kind of vaguely kept up with it even when I got to university in 2014. You know, one of the first talks I actually gave in, in my computer science class was about Bitcoin. And I still have the slides to this day, and it, they're completely awful. I uh, had a really, <laughs> really only a basic understanding uh, of what was going on. Uh, but and then it wasn't until 2016 that I full I fell you know sort of fully down the rabbit hole. I, I watched this like TechCrunch video of Vitalik talking about Ethereum, 
and it really fascinated me. And so I just kind of dove into the space head first. Uh, but I was still in school, so hadn't started working in the space or anything, just started following it really closely. And then it wasn't until 2019 that I got my, I kind of graduated college in 2018, worked in esports for a little while doing uh, video production, graphic design, motion design. And then in 2019, uh, crypto was taking up so much of my time that I knew I had to work in this space. Uh, so I, I ended up getting a, a position as a community manager at the Stellar Development Foundation uh, and stayed there for like two, two and a half years or so, really you developing my skills. Yeah, I was, I was at Stellar first. That was my sort of first real job uh, out, out of college. Uh, before that, I was doing a lot of freelance stuff in, in esports and then... Um, SDF was my first real job, and I really, oh, wow. you know, had the opportunity to sort of grow as a professional there uh, before joining Liquidity. What's what are they up to now? I remember like getting Shield Stellar in 2017. People <laughs> like, this is backed by IBM, man. It's going to be the most best crypto in the world. Yeah. So they they spent. You know, I think they spend a lot of time in a different part of, of the crypto space. They're really trying to connect sort of more traditional financial financial institutions through crypto. And that's just such a hard uh, sort of hard thing to do. And especially because some of these institutions, you mentioned IBM, like they're so slow to move and, and adopt new technology that it, it was a pretty difficult uphill battle. Um, so... Yeah, that that's where they're focused mostly, and that's why if you're you're super into DeFi, you probably don't hear what they're up to much. But we were really focused on onboarding a lot of uh, traditional financial institutions, and you know, encouraging them them to issue stable coins and other sort of uh, highly regulated assets assets on chain. So uh, I I don't know as much what they're up to uh, since I left and since I joined Liquidity, but that's what kind of what we were up to before before I parted ways. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, so did you, did you like, when was the first time you like really got in yourself? Was it like 2017 or were you in, were, I'm interested in like some w war stories if you have any, from, <laughs> like <laughs> the early yeah. days. So I, in, in 2016 was when I, I kind of bought my first little bit of Bitcoin and a little bit of ETH. Um, and the, the story was that my my roommate at the time, uh, we were still in college, and he was kind of day trading, uh, I think, oil stocks or, or something like that. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to save up you know, my first little bit of money, and I'm going to invest in oil stocks with them because uh, you know, he, <laughs> he was a petroleum engineer at the school we were going at. So he had a little bit of a bias there. And, yeah. I, and that's kind of how I actually stumbled upon that, that Vitalik video. I was like, okay, I'd saved up this $1,000, but I thought to myself, Man, like I saved up this thousand dollars, which was a lot to me, uh, a whole lot to me in college at the time. I was like, but this Bitcoin thing, every time I look at it, you know, the price keeps going up and maybe, maybe I should just check out that. And so I kind of was digging around on YouTube, stumbled upon the Vitalik video and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to throw it into crypto. And I guess, you know, that was a good decision. I wish I had saved up way more than a thousand dollars, but, yeah. um, I, I learned a lot from between, you know, 2016, 2017 and 2018. Uh, the the main thing I learned though was that I was definitely not a trader, uh, so made a lot of mistakes there, uh, bad financial decisions. But yeah. uh, you know, it was all it was all a learning experience leading into sort of DeFi summer in in 2020, and it never yeah. deterred me. I just kept going. Mm. You got it. Like I mean, you got it. You look back at some of your early decisions, and you're like, 
it's either like you've made like a bit of money or you like just lost everything and then like the next sort of time you get in you're like if the earlier time had been different like you think about how different things could have been like <laughs> do you agree with that or <laughs> yeah no I, I, I think that's exactly right like you you experiment you learn you fail a lot in this space and i think a lot of people's sort of entry point is trading and i just kind of realized really quickly that that was not for me uh, i'm much more of a long-term uh, position type of guy now i like to really invest in the success of, of the projects i you know either work with or talk to or whatever else so um yeah you kind of learn a lot you fall on your face a lot but that's all part of it i mean it's a really fast moving industry and there's so much opportunity out there for you to you know pick yourself back up if, if you ever do fail so um yeah i completely agree were you in DeFi summer like were you around for like compound and yam and like yeah YFI? i was <laughs> i was there for all of it um i actually have one of the like i'm pretty sure there was like this original uh yfi nft that you got if you if you were a, a, a yfi farmer oh, so i played I, for yfi or something yeah it was one, it was that nft little racket I, or something yeah i, I definitely have it so <laughs> I, I was there for all of it uh, which was really amazing and it, it was just cool it was cool to see because it was like okay here's my redemption arc right i'd, I'd made all these bad tra trading decisions <laughs> up until then uh and i and deep by summer was like the perfect way to uh, sort of like play financial games and, and earn cool tokens and participate in governance and all that cool stuff. So, yeah, I was there for all of it and it was really fun. Uh, and at the time I was still at Stellar. So it was like I would literally be working all day and then just go home. And then it was like DeFi <laughs> summer all day. It's all it was. I never yeah. got to unplug. Yeah, it's a bit like that working in a DAO as well. Um, Do you uh when did you sort of first come across ohm can you tell us about that because you're like you've got i assume you have a bit of ohm after working with us so closely yeah um I, so i i wish i remembered the original person who dm'd me but i don't think it was somebody who is in the dow at the moment uh, or at least mm -hmm. I, I it's not somebody i, I remember talking to recently but yeah, somebody hopped into the Liquidity Discord at some point and was like, hey, there's this Olympus project. We want you guys to do like a treasury swap or something like that. And, and mind you, Olympus was very small at the time, like a, a mm. tiny fraction of, of what the size Liquidity was. And they were mentioning like a, a million dollar treasury swap or something like that. I was like, man, <laughs> there's no way I can justify, <laughs> justify that internally, right? For this like really, really small project. And then on top of that, we're not a DAO. So like doing stuff like that has a lot of tax implications, legal implications, et cetera. So I was like, okay, there's nothing really we can do here. Uh, and that was the only pitch I got. There wasn't a pitch to do like LUSD bonds or LUSD own bonds or anything like that. Um, so I had kind of first heard about Olympus there. And then we started, I started doing some digging on my own and I found the project a, a little bit later as it started to grow. Um, and then I, I started finding the project really interesting. And then someone who was a lot more active in the DAO, I presume, uh, ended up reaching out. I wish I could remember who it was. I'm forgetting all my names, but they they proposed the sort of LUSD bonds and LUSD being a good candidate for a sort of reserve asset. And I was like, okay, this really makes sense for for liquidity, right? If we want to launch this decentralized stablecoin, it's important that it's a fundamental pillar in all of these new DeFi experiments. So. 
there was a two-pronged approach there to to my introduction to ohm but the original one wasn't as uh as favorable as the second yeah so what was your like first impression were you like oh this is gonna fail this is a ponzi or were you like great if you want lausd <laughs> you take it guys well i, I thought it was interesting I, I didn't really have strong opinions on whether it was going to fail or succeed because i tried not to do that too much yeah. too much in the space because i mean it's hard to know right like i, I won't pretend that i'm an expert on predicting yeah. you know what's going to last over the next five years um even Dog like money for example yeah like even <laughs> even liquidity for example what is and was a crazy experiment in yeah. in borrowing and so like it, it's hard to know and so when i first heard the idea i was like okay this is a really interesting approach it's the one of the approaches that i like the most uh for, you know, regarding the way a lot of these like algorithmic stables or reserve assets, et cetera, have been tried. Mm. Um, and then I, I kind of brought it up internally and even Robert and a couple of the other teammates who are, are more into like mechanism design and game theory than I am thought it was also interesting. So it's like, okay, you know, this has, this has the thumbs up from some smart people that I trust. Uh, my gut says it's pretty interesting. Like this kind of makes sense to do. Uh, and if anybody, and, I, and the other aspect of it was the community was so so massive and so passionate which from a uh sort i guess from a game theory perspective is extremely extremely important for a project like olympus i mean even recently we've seen i don't even know how many forks launch but half of them either rug or fail because they just don't have you know the initial community bootstrapping bootstrapping the success so whenever i saw all of the technical aspects checked out the community aspect checked out it kind of just really made sense for us to to pursue a, a close integration which ended up being massively successful yeah it's, it's what is it olympus now like the seventh biggest holder or something it, I, it almost it might even be higher honestly um we were oh, wow. just talking about this <laughs> the other day with uh with abby and um and glue on on the liquidity live uh episode that we did and i i think there might even be one of the top five holders but olympus is definitely the largest project holding lusd if, if i'm not mistaken yeah. especially the largest dao except uh, i think Faye protocol might give give the dao a run for their money uh whenever they launch this new 100 million lusd acquisition plan that they they recently proposed to governance so we might have to Turn those bonds back on and let Olympus Dow get the, get the number one spot again <laughs> afterwards. Yeah, yeah, it's it's super interesting. I think like they just like oh we've got this like billion dollar treasury or whatever it is. It's <laughs> like, yeah, so weird that you can like raise so much money at your launch and then um and you see it with like a lot of projects, right? It's just an attention game really, and people want to see like a big upside. Yeah. So maybe you can just talk about 0% interest loans and how you think they might affect economies. Like, cause I t talk to like my friends and family and I'm like, oh, well, there's going to be 0% interest loans. Right. And I mean, I assume liquidity is going to build it out for other assets and whatnot. But like, if you can take a 0% interest loan, then you never have to pay it back. And it's just kind of, changes how you see money and how the incentive structures work how do you explain it to people and they're like so there is no interest how how are you making money like yeah yeah there there you know it's been a really interesting problem to solve because 
I mean, the, our, the first big project uh, that really allowed collateralized borrowing on Ethereum was MakerDAO. So Maker really set the standard for what the user should expect from you know such a borrowing experience. And essentially, um, MakerDAO has you know a pretty high collateral ratio, uh, minimum collateral ratio, but they also have variable interest rates. So uh, for anybody who is around, kind of in early early DeFi summer, even maybe like pre-DeFi summer, I, I can't remember the year, but there was a period where uh, DAI's sort of interest rate or stability fee went from like some super low percentage, uh, at least like a single digit percentage to something like 20% within two, three weeks or something like that. Mm -hmm. So if you're a borrower, you saw your interest rate change dramatically over the course of a very short time frame, and then eventually it, it went back down. So like whenever you have stuff like that kind of setting the standard for what this experience should be like. Launching Liquidity was really interesting because people are like, okay, well, what's what's the catch, right? There's always a catch. There's always trade-offs. Um, and to understand how Liquidity offers interest-freeness, uh, you have to kind of understand how the borrowing and redemption mechanism works. So whenever you borrow, it's not completely free, right? So interest-free doesn't mean uh, simply just free. So instead of paying an interest rate over the duration of your loan, uh, you just pay a one-time borrowing fee at at the loan origination. So once you borrow, so let's say you borrow uh, two thousand LUSD. Uh, there's usually the the fee is usually at a, at its lowest, which is zero point five percent. So you'll just pay ten dollars off that two thousand LUSD upfront, and you don't have to worry about the cost anymore after that. Mm. And the way that we allow for this, and something like MakerDAO doesn't, is because interest and a lot of these protocols is used as this sort of economic lever to expand and contract stablecoin supply. So for example, um, historically, uh, and there's other reasons for this, but this is a big one. Like historically, if DAI was trading above PEG, Maker would lower the interest rate to incur encourage DAI supply expansion. So that way the price goes back down. Uh, and the inverse of that is also true. So if DAI was below PEG, you hike up the interest rates to encourage people to pay off their debt and then shrink the outstanding DAI supply to increase the price. So the way LUSD kind of handles this supply uh, dynamic is through what we call a redemption mechanism. So at any time, anybody can redeem LUSD against the system as if it's worth $1. And I'll address two parts of this. So the first part is that creates an instant arbitrage mechanism whenever LUSD floats below a dollar. Uh, so let's say it's 98 cents. You can buy up a bunch of it, redeem it against the system for ETH, and then sell that ETH and keep the arbitrage profit. Um, the way the redemption works under the hood is that the redeemed LUSD actually pays off the debt of the riskiest positions in the system in return for their collateral. So this is a, a completely new dynamic that's never existed before uh, in DeFi, this idea of paying off somebody else's debt in return for, for their collateral. It'd be almost like, uh, let's say you have a car and you took out a loan for the car and then I came and pay off, come and pay off your loan and then I get to keep your car. It's kind of a, a similar situation. Car. Only in DeFi could you get really get away with something like this. Um, yeah. In the real world, it's a little bit harder, but... That's the sort of underlying mechanism that allows for interest freeness because we've kind of introduced this new redemption mechanism to handle that supply and demand dynamic of, of LUSD itself. Yeah. Um, so the, but with the 0% interest loans, right? I mean, once you take the loan, 
do you have to pay like a fee to pay it back? Is that right? Like it's another 0.5%? Or... Nope. You only pay the 0.5% at loan origination and then you can keep it open at, as long as you want. And so like, obviously, if you are a long-term ETH holder and you really want to keep that ETH position for forever, I mean, being able to take out a, a loan with sort of no terms on it and then you know your cost to borrow up front is a pretty sweet deal. I mean, even recently we saw... I won't name drop because uh, it may not be appropriate, but we saw a prominent uh, crypto figurehead uh, tweet about how they they use liquidity to actually borrow money to, to buy their house, uh, which is amazing, right? Because that I'm sure that beats almost any interest rate they would have gotten from, from a, a bank. So if they had enough ETH, they put it into the system, they borrowed their LUSD, they paid that 0.5% up front, and then now they could just pay that LUSD off or whenever they want they, they can yeah. do it on any timeline versus whatever the bank has to say or whatever on top of that they didn't have to walk into a bank and fill out all this like crazy paperwork and do all these background checks or, or you know everything else that they do it kind of changes the tax game as well doesn't it like if you can <laughs> take a loan against your assets in a lot of countries that's not a taxable event and then if you never have to pay it back because you're not paying you like you have no incentive to um, it's going to create these really weird <laughs> kind of uh, problems for governments, but that's not your guys' concern. You're just <laughs> yeah, I'm, a solution. I'm, <laughs> I'm by no means a, a tax expert or anything, but I have seen yeah. people talking about this, and, it, and it's really interesting. I mean, I, I, I hope that liquidity is favorable favorable for people in terms of taxes, but I guess it depends a lot on your jurisdiction and your situation, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I have heard a lot of people talking about this, so I hope it's true. Um, maybe I'll find out at the end of the year when I talk to my tax professionals and they'll give me some good news. And I, I hope the same is true for a lot of our users. That'd be really cool. Yeah. I played around a bit with liquidity before, um, the interview and the the front ends are really like some of them are really cool um they've got like all this info and like they have all these different ways they represent your loan and then you can just go over to another front end and then they've got this other cool feature which you know the, the first one you tried didn't have have you checked them all out what's your like uh kind of impression are they slowly improving over time and people keeping on developing them is that it's been a bit of a mix of, of both like there there are some people i mean obviously whenever you have a situation where let's say there i think right now there's over 20 front ends i mean the pareto distribution kind of applies in terms of success like that there are a handful of, of liquidity front ends that account for the majority of users and they have the majority of users and capital flowing through them and so i think with a lot of those they're a little bit more motivated to continue innovating and growing their user base just because it's an important revenue stream for them. Mm -hmm. While the bottom tier, um, and, and I don't mean bottom tier as a judgment on the quality of their front end, just the bottom tier in terms of performance, they they generally get a little bit unmotivated, uh, which is fair enough, right? If you're, if you're doing something and it takes a lot of effort and a lot of work and you're not making a lot of money from it, then it can kind of be a little bit demoralizing and maybe not worth your time, uh, which is totally fine. And I, I think so we, we've seen a mix of both, uh, but we're also starting to see some really creative front ends like DeFi Saver and Instadap and a couple of others who are introducing a lot of functionality that 
users just otherwise wouldn't have. Like, you know, one-click leverage, for example, the ability to uh, just sign a couple of transactions and get levered up is amazing. Or like DeFi Saver allows you to uh, transfer your maker uh, your maker vault to a liquidity trove uh, very easily. They set up this sort of recipe for you. So we're starting to see a bunch of cool tooling like that. So I think it's kind of only the beginning stages, but we we try our best to like put out resources for front ends to succeed. We also pass on a lot of the user feedback we get uh, to make sure that you know front ends know what's working and what's not. Uh, also, when we see issues occur or issues with the UX, we always try to keep in touch and make sure that frontends are aware of it. So it's been interesting. I think, you know, that we've learned a lot from kind of introducing this like new paradigm to DeFi about like incentivizing decentralized frontends. It's been tried before and it's just never really worked. And so we're the first ones who have kind of pulled it off in a way that's really successful. Uh, but it also, you know, it comes with it comes with its challenges. So we're, we're always constantly improving those. And I I ask anyone who has feedback for us on how we can better, you know, manage our front ends and encourage innovation to, to please reach out and, and let us know. Yeah, very cool. I like um, DeFi Saver. It's a really good way for them to be able to monetize as well because they provided all these services, but they couldn't really get any sort of funding from like providing a make a die nice sort of interface that you have. So, um, yeah, very cool. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit more about liquidity and if you're able to sort of what what is the roadmap from here? Like you've made this zero um, percent interest loans. It's this new primitive, this new way to pay back loans, decentralized front ends. Is it is is there still more to be done with this liquidity in terms of? Um, is it, you know, a growth game kind of promotion and making sure the front ends are great and keeping on doing that? Or is there a kind of a roadmap where we see more assets kind of being able to use uh, the like liquidity um, kind of process and then the fee gets to captured to a new token or it goes back to the old token or can you tell us and appreciate you might not be able to say very much on <laughs> yeah this. i can't leak too much alpha but the, the the real focus is and has been for a while on just continuing to grow network effects around lusd and i know you know this from from working in the dow that like network effects around anything like whether it's a stable coin or reserve asset are extremely extremely important if you don't have those, uh, there's no demand for your asset or stablecoin. And then if there's no demand for your asset or stablecoin, there's no borrowing demand. And so if there's no demand for either borrowing or using LUSD, then there's just no reason for, for the protocol to exist. So we've been really focused on doing things like growing liquidity around LUSD, but also trying to spearhead the adoption of more unique use cases, whether it's, you know, like the integration with Olympus or recently uh, the integration with Faye or, you know, we're also talking to a couple of other DAOs who are interested in diversifying into LUSD. So that's that's really been our, our focus. And the other thing is like just growing the core user base. So we still have a long way to go in terms of marketing and, and brand recognition. I mean, MakerDAO, Compound, Aave, and a couple of our other competitors just have a, a much 
longer head start. We only launched around seven, eight months ago. And so, yeah. and so we, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to move really quickly on, on growing the brand, but whenever somebody has a two, three year head start, just, it, you know, it's a, it's a long hill to climb. So we've been really focusing on education, getting content out, growing our core user base, making sure that people know who we are, uh, know how to use liquidity and know how to succeed within the ecosystem. Um, there are some other things we're researching internally. Uh, so we haven't completely stopped innovating. Like it doesn't just end immediately with liquidity, but uh, we're, we're still so early phase in there that I, I don't want to reveal too much just in case, yeah. you know, I don't want to make false promises or anything like that. So uh, just, I, I do want everybody to know that the innovation doesn't stop, right? We're, we're always researching and we're always focusing on, you know, how we can improve the liquid ecosystem. I saw on Twitter the other day, there was like a bit of a discussion around uh, liquidity and the peg was a little bit off and then some of the mechanisms were taking a while to kick in. And then I think it was Tetranode was saying, oh, you know, liquidity, they should have had a mutable, like had been able to change parameters for at least like a year or whatever. Do you think there's, do you think there's some truth to the criticisms or, I mean, it's, it fixed itself when like less than 24 hours from what I could see. Um, do you sometimes think, oh, that would have been better? I suppose it just brings in a whole lot of regulatory issues that you, but that's the whole idea not to have them, right? Right. That's a, that's a really good question. It's something we kind of, one, we thought a lot, a lot about before launch, but two, we think a lot about now. I mean, having governance and the, having the ability to uh, change certain parameters or tweak certain parameters or, you know, add new functionality. All of that stuff has its trade-offs, just like not having it has its trade-offs. So, I mean, of course, if, if we could make changes or if we had governance, we'd have flexibility that we don't have now. But on the flip side of that, I think a lot of our users find comfort in the system as is. And how big that addressable user base is, uh, I have no idea. We're still in the process of discovering that. But I think so many of our users just enjoy the fact that they know like, okay, they know that the terms aren't going to change out from under them. They know that no weird collateral types uh, that add new risk to the system are going to get added. They know that they know basically how the stable coin works and how its stability works. And so all in all, they just know the rules of the game and they know those rules aren't going to change without their permission or uh, through some, you know, weird governance vote. So yeah. It, it's just one of those trade-offs we made. Uh, do sometimes I wish we could just like tweak something or like, I don't know, just get something passed through governance. Sure. Like, but on, on the flip side, I also just enjoy that the system can live as simply as it does. And there's no room for like human error like my own. Right. So <laughs> I, I just mentioned it would be cool to change stuff, but that's probably not the best idea to have me thinking of ideas and like injecting them into a, into a system without everybody's permission. So I, I don't know. It, it's a weird challenge, but Sometimes the criticism is warranted. Sometimes uh, it isn't. And I, I think most of the time when it isn't, it's just because they don't fully understand the philosophy of not only our company, but but liquidity, the protocol. And so after spending a, a little bit of time talking to us or, or talking to the community, people kind of generally change their minds. First of all, is it like kind of like a sizable community and they're kind of attached to the success of liquidity because they, you know, own some liquidity and they're like invested in the project. And do you think that could have been different or it's more effective if it's kind of a governance token rather than a fee capture token in general? 
And what is the kind of state of the liquidity community? There's no DAO, but you have a community, right? We talk about this all the time internally <laughs> because, I mean, at the end of the day, there's like, I don't think it's a secret that a lot of communities just sort of, or a lot of projects rather, just kind of launch a token and slap governance on so they can sort of bootstrap a community, which in and of itself is not problematic. It's just kind of the reality that, you know, having a speculative token and having governance is sort of this like cheat code to building an ecosystem, right? It's the mm -hmm. way that people get involved, the way that people get active. And so for us, we've had to find a different approach to having that same sort of feel. And I think the way we do it, and I hope it's useful to, to our ecosystem, is we really focus on education. So we want to make sure that when somebody discovers liquidity, they can really succeed as a user, not just in borrowing LUSD, but using LUSD and engaging with our partners and using our integrations and, you know, hopefully becoming involved in our partners' communities. And so we... I, Per, per integration, we do the best we can to get out as much content around that integration uh, just so that our users just know how to use it. They know how to engage in it. They hopefully get active in that community. And we also make sure that we have a ton of educational content around liquidity itself for the same reason. So that's where we've spent a lot of our time. And I think, you know, while our community isn't uh, massive, it's definitely not the size of the Olympus community, for example, um, it, it is pretty big and it also is very helpful and collaborative and like people are always in there asking questions and teaching each other and you know figuring out where the alpha is for different liquidity integrations and so it's a little bit of a different vibe um which is cool for us because uh it, it could be the alternative where we just have no community at all because there's just no governance to rally around so i think the approach we have works uh within the context of, of liquidity so that's been a cool little experiment but i guess the short answer is just a, a a major focus on education is is how we've managed to grow out and build out our community. And it is very different from a sort of governance-based community. Yeah. I mean, you've kind of, in some respects, like they, you giving people questions they have to decide on is a super powerful way to activate them and make them sort of think about the trade-offs and whether or not they think it's the right decision and kind of then they're invested in the outcome as well and then it m must be a little bit difficult not kind of having that um, and kind of the people in the community I suppose are just interested in the project or maybe they've bought some liquidity tokens and yeah they they're invested in the upside of liquidity success is that kind of how you see it as well or yeah that's right and we also have it's really funny because we we also have people who uh they, since they know that the system can't be changed, they're also critical, or instead of being critical of the system, they're critical of like the direction of, critical in a good way, of the direction of integrations, or like who, is, who should we be integrating with, or who are the partners we should be talking to. And for me, that makes my, my job way easier when we get that type of feedback, because I'm like, okay, here's what our core user base wants, here's the direction they want us to go, and here's what makes sense for them. And so as long as we can build out an ecosystem that's beneficial for them. It encourages them to stay along and keep participating, et cetera. So uh, yeah, there, there's all of these different aspects that have been really cool to see develop that I don't think would exist if we had governance. Because if we had governance, I mean, we'd probably be bickering about like, what is the next change we're going to add to liquidity? But since that yeah. sort of simple foundation <laughs> is removed, we're just focused on like, all right, how can we continue to grow this ecosystem that we have here and set people up for success? 
just different questions. So can it go cross-chain? I suppose you could go to L2s. How would that work? Or is that even something that can happen? You're, you're asking all of the right questions that we think <laughs> about a ton internally. And I think on the L2 front or multi-chain front, I just think it'd be too difficult um, to be completely honest from a technical perspective. So whenever you think about a project like Uniswap or SushiSwap or uh, some other sort of generalized protocol, maybe it's Aave, uh, they can sort of just spin up a clone on any chain or any L2 that they want and let the market bootstrap itself. Uh, whereas for Liquidity, since the system is immutable and it also has a stable coin attached to it, it's not so easy for us to do that. Because, uh, I mean, one solution would be like, okay, yeah, we can deploy Liquidity clones everywhere, but then there'd be like five LUSDs, which... Uh, it's not good for liquidity. It's not good for adoption. And I'm sure like centralized exchanges would just really hate us uh, if they ever down the line wanted to integrate us. And they're like, why are there five, you know, LUSDs different on all these ones, different changes? Yeah. So we try to think of like ways that we could do some sort of bridge or some sort of uh, create some sort of mechanism that allowed for borrowing on L2. And it just turned out to be way too technically complex. And it introduced a lot of surface area for things to go wrong. And so we kind of just halted efforts there uh, just because it didn't seem like it was going to make sense for us. And even Maker, uh, for example, have had this sort of similar issue since they're a similar protocol, uh, but they, they recently worked on a solution uh, that I guess works for them. But again, they have that freedom because they can change contracts, they can introduce new contracts and, and they have governance. So that that's one of those areas where like the, the immutability and the governance freeness is a bit of a, a hang up. But on the other hand, we also like a lot of our users don't care about the fees too much. Um, most of them are rather large ETH holders, and so the, the Ethereum gas fees aren't aren't too problematic for them. But we are working on a some sort of solution with with a partner that could could help for a few of our smaller users where gas fees are, are problematic. But uh, I'll. I'll probably have more information on that in the near future. So I guess yeah, people will have right. to follow on Liquidy Live or, or or our Twitter account to keep up with that side of things. Yeah. So are you like, does that worry you? Do you think, oh, well, what if all the activities on L2s, you know, and people people want, like, I suppose you can, you'll continually be thinking about sort of a solution for like an implementation on like a different chain or whatever, but. Like, does that worry you? Do you think, oh, that could really actually affect our long-term viability? It doesn't worry me too much um, because I one, I think, uh, I think we're a long way off from all activity being being on L2s. Um, but also, I, I think like I trust our team to sort of figure that stuff out. Um, if, yeah. if we really needed to make a pivot like that, I think we could, and we would figure out a good solution. But mm. for for now, it, it's really hard also to pick you know, what L2 or what L chain it, or L chain, what uh, other chain <laughs> is appropriate. And the reason for that is because competition is just getting started, right? Like, how do we know if who's going to be the winner out of, I don't know, Optimism and Arbitrum, Arbitrum or Solana and Avalanche? And so for us, we don't feel like we're in a position where we could just like pick one and be certain that a year from now, that's where a lot of economic activity is going to be. So it, it makes sense for us to wait a bit, see how the landscape develops. And if we really need to evolve and adapt and, and end up on an L2 or another chain, I, I think we would do that. But for now, it, it's so early. It's just better for us to wait on the sidelines and see see where the landscape goes. Yeah, I suppose for a lot of protocols, it's kind of 
they have buy-in, right? So if you're some big protocol and you go on Optimism or Arbitrum and then you can kind of do a deal where you say, oh, well, when you release a token, you can like give us some or whatever as being like a, a leader in the protocol. But you guys aren't really interested in having anything in your treasury, right? Like there's no point because you yeah, can't it, decide how to distribute it. <laughs> right. It's, pr it's pretty difficult for us to do that just because, uh, again, like, this is where being a DAO would give you know a project a lot more flexibility but for us it's just hard to manage like doing things like treasury swaps or making promises on like giving x token for you know doing x or yz so yeah it's a hard problem to think about and on top of that we're also i mean we're a top 10 DeFi protocol but we're not like an ave that has however like what 15 billion dollars in it or something like this so if they yeah. if they pick an l2 um, they have a lot of clout that kind of comes with that. And so they can bootstrap a market no problem and maybe bring a couple billion dollars over there or whatever the case may be. Whereas for us, uh, we still feel like we're in a stage where we're growing a lot and LUSD still has a ways to go in terms of network effects. And all of a sudden, if we start fragmenting those efforts, we just make our job a lot, lot harder. Mm, very cool. So maybe we can just touch on DAOs. You've had a chance, I suppose, to like work for the firm, but you're also doing this growth work. You're exposed to a lot of DAOs um, and kind of how they work. Have you been kind of surprised about DAOs? Were you like, these won't ever work. People can't coordinate properly outside a company structure. I suppose you're very young, so it's... Yeah, I, I do young, have a little like, bit of bias you know, for being, yeah, yeah. The, I do have a youth bias, I guess. And also like crypto is kind of the only industry that I've ever really worked in. So I have that bias as well. I, I have like mixed opinions about DAOs and like what they should manage and what their responsibilities should be and stuff like that. I think like if we look in the context of Maker, um, I just think that's such a complex DAO to really be a part of and make super valuable contributions to because it's there's so much that that needs to be accounted for right they have to do all kinds of risk analysis to get different collateral types added they have to make sure interest rates are managed properly they have to make sure collateral ratios are managed properly they have to manage this uh, psm module that they have so there's all this stuff that has to be managed where there's just not that many people who have the necessary skill sets to sort of partake in those type of discussions and make those type of decisions. So your ability to scale up is severely limited. But there's also DAOs that uh, sort of are a little bit less involved on that type of thing. Like I consider Olympus DAO part of this because so much of it is really community oriented, treasury oriented, uh, content oriented, etc. So like I think DAOs need to exist somewhere in between. I like the idea of DAOs mostly just being responsible for marketing efforts and content and community growth and all of those things. Um, I'm not as big a fan of people managing like really um, important infrastructural, like economic levers uh, of any kind. I think that's really, really hard. So that's where teams are really useful. And I mean, I, I think Olympus is learning this as well, like wanting to give the policy team a little bit more unilateral control over some of the decisions that are made and, you know, having the policy team post a framework, et cetera. Um, that type of stuff, I think, is really important to be managed by a tight-knit group of people rather than, you know, 70 people in a DAO. Yeah. Uh, but as far as working with DAOs, it's been 
very interesting uh, because some DAOs are just more productive than others and more efficient than others and have better processes than others. And so at a company, you know, you have a pretty set BD pipeline, you have a pretty set marketing pipeline, you have a pretty set uh, content pipeline, whereas DAOs are a little bit more ad hoc and they're just like, sometimes they just throw processes together. Um, this is why I like uh, working so closely with you guys at Olympus is because like Olympus is really amazing to work with, but that's not true for, for every DAO. So that's my only only real two gripes with DAOs. One, I think some of them have too much responsibility and it makes scaling the DAO difficult. And then two, some of them haven't done a great job of making sure that their processes are in place uh, so that they can really, really succeed. Uh, so those are two things that could easily be figured out in the near future. I mean, DAOs are just really starting to get their footing over the last year, year and a half. So uh, companies have been around for forever. So so there's a little bit of a head start advantage yeah. there. Yeah. Um, I think with DAOs, it's like you have to be so consultative as well with all the contributors. It's very difficult to execute. So you might have like 10 people in a meeting where a company would have like three people in a meeting like <laughs> because everyone wants to know what's going on <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. yeah Dao DAOs make it hard just because i mean there, there there's this interesting challenge that DAOs have where um they want as many people to get involved uh, as possible but on the other hand you don't really want that for efficient processes right like like you were mentioning like a, a DAO having 10 people in a meeting is really crazy because you know who who takes point on that conversation afterward, or who's the one taking notes, or like who's yeah. the one who does the follow up conversation? And it's like, is it a is it just a you know a random pick of whoever does that, whoever happens to show up that day? So th those are really interesting challenges that I think DAOs have ahead of them. Like how do you scale, um, and how do you scale properly such that everybody's in a position to where they can succeed long term without their work getting diluted? Right? Like you don't you don't want to be the person who owns I don't know, let's say you're the person who owns marketing, but then three more marketing people join in a month and then your workload gets diluted and you're kind of stuck in a position where you're like, okay, well, who owns what? How much leadership should this person really have, even though they're really skilled? Um, yeah, all that good yeah. stuff. So I'm, I'm um, looking forward to frameworks developing that, that maybe solve that issue. Yeah, hopefully our governance V2 is coming up. So... Not not the token V2. There's actually this project in the DAO to have uh, a new structure with like different accountabilities. So uh, I think it, it's looking pretty cool. Uh, I think people will like it. But maybe yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know one project that's really good at this type of stuff is Yearn. Um, Yearn has really gone through it all in terms of governance, having to mint, mint new YFI from Andre, like taking a big step back to Vantech taking over. So... I have nothing but kind words for the way that uh, Yearn has sort of evolved its governance and, and ecosystem. It's never, it hasn't really been easy for them, but they've always been, been the ones sort of leading the charge on on trying to get that stuff right. So it's been fascinating to watch them grow, and I'm sure the Olympus framework is going to be just as good. I mean, you guys have a lot of smart minds uh, working on stuff in the DAO, so yeah it's just so it's, it's so big though that's the problem it is massive anyway, yeah <laughs> all right well maybe you can quickly tell us like what's exciting coming up for liquidity and then we can finish out yeah i think the the biggest stuff is just we're, con we're just continuing to expand our, our ecosystem um i think you know not too long ago we recently hired a community manager who has been absolutely knocking it out of the park with 
uh, content. And so we'll continue to expand our content, continue creating these sort of pipelines for people to uh, find success in our ecosystem. We're also really doubling down on making sure that DAOs can get exposure to LUSD. We want to make sure that you know decentralized organizations have ultimate access to a decentralized stablecoin, and it only makes sense that a lot of these DAOs start to diversify. Um, and LUSD seems like a prime candidate for that. I mean, it, it really doesn't make sense for you know even a DAO like Olympus DAO to have a whole bunch of USDC on the balance sheet. That's sort of an existential risk. So we're hoping <laughs> LUSD can come in and, and really take the spotlight there. Uh, we've also seen more unique integrations recently where Synthetics uh, SUSD peg on Optimism uh, has been a little bit broken. And so they need to drive, uh, they need an ARB mechanism. And so they're introducing uh, support for minting SUSD against LUSD on Optimism in order to drive that peg down. So we love Wait, use cases so like that. Your LUSD is on Optimism then, or...? So there will be a bridge that basically allows people to port LUSD over. Um, it's not a full integration, just a simple bridge uh, integration. So pretty oh, soon we might see a decent right. amount of LUSD on Optimism that maybe people can can play with, uh, at least from a trading perspective and from a, a perspective of arbing down SUSD. But yeah. those are all of the the sort of things that we're pursuing, just continuing to drive LUSD's narrative as one of the best sort of decentralized stablecoins in the space alongside our friends at uh, at Frax and Fay Protocol. Yeah. Um, the, the peg was so broken. It was like 30% off. Yeah, it was pretty stupid. tough. I mean, they were in a, an emergency situation where I think originally they were using ETH to uh, allow for the minting of SDUSD to bring the peg yeah. down. And they just couldn't get enough ETH there, I don't think. Yeah. Um, and then they wanted LUSD, but there was no LUSD bridge at the time. And so uh, we were all on like this emergency governance call. And I think they agreed to allow DAI to happen uh, just until the, the LUSD bridge was set up. So hopefully we can roll that out really, really soon uh, and, and help them out. Because, I mean, we want to make sure that all, all of our decentralized friends are adequately pegged. And I think... You know, the best way to do that is to all work together on a lot of this stuff, like Fay, Frax, LUSD, and even SUSD, like making sure that all of us are, are even LUSD from, from Alchemix as well, like making yeah. sure all of us are collaborative and setting each other up for success ensures that we can sort of, I guess, topple the USDC and USDT overlords in, in DeFi, because we can only do it together. Um, you know, decentralized stablecoins have practical scaling solution or scaling um ceilings that they they always hit and so the only way we can do it is is an aggregate and eventually i think you know if we all work together we'll we'll succeed in doing so or at least i hope yeah that's very nice of you to say i think uh, yeah you see it more and more now this kind of culture very collaborative culture between projects and DAOs. i'm yeah i'm super big fan of lusd um, I always just feel so comfy when it's the stable coin in my <laughs> wallet, you know, I don't, it's like, I used to have that feeling towards USDC, but then like the more you learn about it, the more you're kind of like, uh, well, it's yeah, actually not that exactly. great. <laughs> exactly. They introduce yeah. all kind of risks that uh, usually people, I mean, the average person, uh, if they're just getting into DeFi, like USDC exposure is not going to be a big deal, but as you sort of learn the philosophy of DeFi and what we're trying to do here, you eventually start to uh, find a little bit of distaste toward both USDC and USDT or anybody who relies too much, too much on them. 
And so it, it's been cool for people to latch on to the sort of decentralized narrative and start to feel more cozy holding stable coins that are backed by more supreme types of, of collateral like ETH, for example. Yeah, because yours is backed by $1 worth of um, ETH. So actually, it's it's actually just ETH that's been now re-denominated in a $1 US worth right it's not yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly so you, it's you not know, a stable you know coin really it's like, yeah exactly yeah I, I, that's a little bit of a mental barrier because i was like people were like well olympus is backed and then i was like yeah it's backed it's got like eth and stable coins and they're like yeah but the stable coins are just us dollars and i'm like no they're not they're like one dollar worth of backing you know they're not they're not it's got nothing to do with the dollar really in terms of how it's backed so, yeah yeah that's exactly right and i mean the dollar is more of just an accounting trick at this point because i mean dollars are something that everybody around the world understands um and so if they see a dollar they sort of understand the value that they have but i think what's really important is what's backing that dollar and can it be can it ever be confiscated from you and in the case of usdc and usdt those can be frozen and your balance can be taken from you and so it's important that you know you hold something like lusd or frax or you know whatever else so that you know you, you can feel cozy holding your your lusd or, or whatever decentralized stablecoin you choose as you mentioned and know that you know nothing can be stripped out from under you yeah and they might decide not to redeem it you know like if something comes along and they're like no you can't you know these people are excluded from redeeming and then what you get back is one a paper piece of paper <laughs> that's got a one dollar on it you know it's, like, exactly. it's not backed by anything yeah um, exactly very cool well it's been super nice to talk to you colton thanks for taking the time to come and talk to us today and teach us a bit about liquidity and give your background and your story it's been yeah of course, anytime. Thanks for having me on, Mark. All right. Omis, we will re be releasing this on the 15th of November, and we will be having a Spaces on Tuesday, the 16th, Asia time, uh, 8 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. Singapore time. And then we will, later this week, we'll have the regular Spaces on Thursday, the 18th at 3 p.m. Pacific. And then we'll be back with another News of the Week on the 19th. But till next time, Omis, we'll see you. Goodbye.